Welcome back to Discover Virtual Reality Design Podcast. This is your host, Aki Järvinen. And today we are going to have a discussion with Antonia Forster, who is an XR developer uh, currently working for Unity. Before that, just a couple of updates from myself. So please do remember uh, to sign up for my newsletter on all things XR design related. That's uh, designsuperpowers.substack.com. So designsuperpowers.substack.com. One more thing. So uh, before Christmas 2020, there will be one more episode. So I have an interview with Andrea Bravo recorded a couple of weeks ago. And so I will put that out uh, before Christmas. And in that one, we will discuss one particular research paper that Andrea has been involved with, which has to do with using AR for visualization purposes. So the third season has uh, been slightly more expansive in the sense that we haven't only been focusing on virtual reality and uh, with the last one, at least this calendar year, uh, we will be focusing on AR. And today with Antonia, we are going to talk about XR in quite a broad manner, but still addressing some specific design considerations. And also we will touch upon the topic of diversity and inclusion in this space, which uh, as many emerging technology spaces tends to be dominated by quite a homogeneous uh, male uh, workforce, for instance. And so Antonia has good points about how we can think about expanding and diversifying this space. But yeah, without further ado, uh, I'll give you Antonia Forster. All right, listeners, I'm here with Antonia Forster. She is a VR developer. Maybe, Antonia, you're in the best position to quickly introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my previous role was as a Unity Games developer for Ultraly, who um, create haptic interaction in virtual experiences. Um, so I created immersive experiences in Unity. Um, and I'm about to go on to work for Unity as an XR technical specialist. So I work in AR, VR, and uh, mixed reality and that whole umbrella of different Great. Devices. Congratulations for that new exciting role. And so I, I would first like to discuss your sort of journey into XR because I've learned that it's quite interesting and maybe even unique. I mean, we had an opportunity to work together a bit on a hackathon that um, I was involved in organizing through my job at Digital Catapult, which was around VR and hand tracking. And, and you sort of touch upon those things when, when presenting to our hackathon folks, but maybe you could recap. I understand that you don't have a computer science background, uh, but here you are working for Unity uh, sh shortly. So how did that all come to be? Yeah, um, so, so my academic background is actually in scientific research. So I did a degree in zoology. I did a master's in animal behavior. Um, and I went on to start a PhD in ant colony decision making. So I was focused oh. a lot around psychology and zoology. 
actually a year into my PhD, I decided that I didn't want to continue in academia. I wanted to work in science communication as a communicator and public speaker. So mm. I quit the PhD and I went up into uh, science communication full time. Uh, and that was really fantastic. So I did about 10 years of public speaking experience, um, breaking, basically breaking down technical information into a more palatable form. Um, and then three years ago, I had a, a TEDx Bristol talk, which was about LGBTQ in the animal kingdom. So for context, um, I'm bi and I'm poly as well, polyamorous. And um, I thought it was important as part of that talk to disclose that, to make it clear that I wasn't speaking from an outsider's point of view. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't out of the closet publicly, especially to my family. Mm -hmm. So prior to that talk, I came out to my family and experienced a very, very negative reaction. Um, I lost contact with about half of my family and they withdrew any kind of financial support. Uh, science communication isn't very lucrative as an industry, so mm. I was sort of not fully financially independent at that time and so I had to make the very difficult decision of how I was going to maneuver this situation whether whether I was comfortable coming out knowing what the consequences would be mm -hmm. uh, but I decided it was the right thing to do and I'd, I'd find a way forward so what I decided to do was learn to code and go into programming so I learned unity and c sharp partly because it was free mm -hmm. um, and I started learning with Udemy which has online courses which are very inexpensive and uh, YouTube videos and yeah. so I learned that way online and kind of taught myself. Um, and after about a year of that, I ended up as a full-time Unity developer. Uh, and then a year after that, I'm going to end up working at Unity. Um, I did program some stuff along the way. So while I was working as a communicator, I worked mm -hmm. in a planetarium. Um, and that's actually the very first thing I learned to program on was a planetarium, which is a, a really yeah. strange way to get into it. Um, really astronomy specific. So very different to C Sharp. Sure. Um, yeah, so I don't have a computer science background and definitely don't have a traditional uh, way of coming into tech, but my specialty is really in communication. And that's kind of a lot of what my new role is. It's, it's mm. coding and programming, but also communicating the potential of this technology to different stakeholders. Yeah, cool, cool. So I, I'm curious that once you started getting into coding, like what, what was the most sort of uh, difficult thing for you to get into it? So I'm, I'm kind of like, half guessing that some of our listeners are more like designers who might or might not suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome in that they they are not able to necessarily make their designs functional and I've certainly myself suffered from that uh, throughout my career nowadays I can I can do a bit of stuff <laughs> with unity and that has certainly intention there has been to become a better designer so that I've never thought about becoming a a programmer but if I could if I could make things functional up to a point where I can communicate my ideas and features to a, pro, a, a proper programmer and an artist and, and the rest of the team that would make me a better designer I, I faced my own challenges in, in getting to that mindset of getting over that sort of a hump of of actually starting to make stuff but before before sharing what what was difficult for me I would like to hear what was the most difficult thing for you and how did you get around it for sure yeah imposter syndrome is definitely a big thing in my life I still <laughs> yeah. suffer from that a lot I mean as you can imagine like having such a different background to most of the people yeah. around me yeah I really do struggle with that on a, on a day-to-day basis um, I think also being a woman in a very male-dominated mm. field um, in my last organization as far as I'm aware this could be incorrect but as far as I'm aware I'm the only woman in the organization who was actually an active programmer day-to-day -day. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so yeah that that really does all contribute to feeling like do I really belong here do I really know what I'm doing yeah. to the point where I would I would google things and zoom out on my screen because I was worried what I was googling was too obvious and people would mm -hmm. look over at my screen and tell me like why don't you know that which is 
you know, like my, my, the, the whole job of programming is just Googling stuff. So like, <laughs> don't ever feel bad for Googling things. It's, it's what we all do all the time. Yeah. Um, I think actually the, the biggest difficulty I had was not knowing what was important that I understood and what wasn't so important. Mm. So yeah. with coding, it's very different to science in a sense in that with biology i had a very good understanding of each section before i moved forward mm -hmm. i wouldn't write about something or use something without really understanding what it meant and what all the terms meant and, and what i was kind of doing at a statistical level um, with programming you won't ever really understand the full stack of what you're using i mean maybe some people do but even if you understand unity you know unity is kind of built on top of c sharp i guess so you can understand c sharp but then c sharp is built on top of net so you'd have to mm -hmm. understand net and then then you'd have to understand you know machine code and binary and there's really no level at which you could stop and that's mm -hmm. for a single feature and and it's not really useful to dive to that depth all the time you have to yeah. be able to know a feature well enough to implement it to make sure it works that doesn't mean you should copy and paste stuff from stack overflow without understanding it like you should understand your own code all the yeah. time because that's gonna cook you know bite you later if you don't yeah um which you know i've, I've been guilty of that sometimes but it's it's caused problems later if i don't understand mm. it but you don't have to really really have an extremely deep understanding all the way down of the full stack of every feature you're implementing because sure. you'll, you'll never move on if you do that so that, yeah. that was really the biggest mind shift for me was understanding when it was time to just like let go it works i understand why it works why it doesn't work and move forward yeah yeah and also personally i mean i think there's two things that i i realized first of all as with kind of with coding as with any language you have to create a routine uh because what happened with myself was that i had this sort of fits and starts that i i i had a something where i felt that i now i i need to be able to make this functional i need to start learning coding again and then that lasted for whatever two to three weeks and I made some progress but then something came up and a month or even you know longer went and then when I get back got back to it I almost felt that I have to start from scratch again because I just hadn't sort of accumulated that knowledge or that sort of tacit knowledge at least in my head and I think just to encourage people that if you are in that position maybe just use like 10 minutes a day in trying to trying to solve some little issue in your code and that keeps that sort of momentum going i don't know if you agree with that definitely yeah one of the the things i quickly realized when i started learning that i had a misconception going in that coding was a lot like maths and mm. actually i nowadays i always tell people it's it's called a language for a reason it's a yeah. lot more like learning german or spanish except mm -hmm. the language you're learning is the one of many languages of computers which we interact with yeah. every day so it's just really a useful skill like i, I really think programming should be part of the core curriculum and everyone should learn to program mm -hmm. some language because mm -hmm. it's really powerful being able to, to automate tasks but just like yeah. any other language you learn very well when you're immersed and the mm -hmm. more you're taking in the more you're kind of putting it together you can get really fatigued and have to step away but then if you stop doing it for a week and come back it's entirely possible you'll forget quite a lot of what you learned yeah. but that's okay you know you, you relearn it very fast when you start sure, again sure. so yeah sure. it's all very normal so uh, let's talk a little bit about prototyping i mean you've done a bunch of that and will be will be doing going forward so i think so first of all what do you think what for for you what, what is the sort of main benefit to be gained from from prototyping how do you approach prototyping in terms of like scope, what is what is the sort of right scope of 
engaging in a prototyping project and what kind of goes beyond that? How do you kind of think about prototyping? That's a, that's a very good question. I think a lot of different people use the word prototyping in different ways. Mm -hmm. So some people will mean, uh, you know, very polished product and others yeah. will mean um, white boxing. So sort of buttons that function, but they really don't have any kind of artwork mm -hmm. or any kind of um, visuals at all. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what I think of when I when I mean a prototype. For example, if I was prototyping an application or an interface, I'd, you know, approximately lay out you know, a keyboard, sort of how it looks, mm -hmm. and put buttons where they would be, but it wouldn't have any kind of artwork or design or colors because that would come later. Um, something we do a lot in um, mixed realities of VR and AR mm -hmm. is to focus a lot on the user experience because it can be extremely different to interacting with something yeah. on a screen, and particularly because I work in the field of, of hand tracking specifically. So one of the things we prototype for is to try and figure out what the best um, interaction would be. And so for that, you really don't need the artwork. It doesn't really matter what the application looks like. Mm -hmm. You just want to isolate what's the most natural interaction. Do people prefer pushing buttons with one finger or with their whole hand? Or do they prefer pointing at a button and pinching to indicate mm -hmm. they want to grab it? Or do they want to grab it with their hand? Or yeah. there's so many possible ways you can interact with a virtual button. And that's just, just a single button, <laughs> let alone a whole interface. Do we prefer yeah. levers? Do we even want buttons? Like so. Um, the benefit of prototyping, I would say, is one of the biggest ones is that you can really pinpoint uh, the user experience and the interaction before you start building the whole application. And mm -hmm. you really want to know that before you design anything because it's going to inform the whole rest of your design yeah. process. But yeah. I guess there comes a point where you kind of have to... So for instance, like visual or audio feedback can, can be very important for the user experience. And I'm always struggling with the fact that, okay, if I'm prototyping interaction and I realize that, especially if you want to create something fun or satisfying, then it might be the last mile with the small polish and the sort of juiciness, as we sometimes say it, uh, that actually really hits it home. And, and so do you have any thoughts on where to draw the line in addressing details in, in interaction prototyping? I guess that depends on how long you have and I guess the, mm. you know, the stakeholders involved in the project yeah. and how, how high the stakes are, how much investment there is in the project. Because, yeah. you know, some organizations that they're really going to want, you know, years and years of like going back and forth on maybe an interface or a design and other companies, that's not going to be the case. Um, and different stakeholders will have different priorities as well. So for some sure. individuals will be really key. And um, mm. I find that projects are like gases in that they'll expand to fill the time wanted to. Mm -hmm. So in, in projects that I've worked on at least, um, you know, we've always been iterating really until we have to get it out of the door because we really want the best possible product. But there, there is a point where you really have to draw a line on it, um, particularly if you're programming in uh, visual changes, because yeah. then you don't know what knock-on effects that's going to have on the rest of the code. And, sure. um, you know, I have had that experience where we have a little bit of polish and we take out an image or something, suddenly the whole application falls down for some unknown reason. And it's yeah, you know, yeah. a bit maddening towards the end. So you do definitely have to draw a line under it at some point. But, um, so in your experience, what's your general kind of take on the specifics of XR and, and, and in terms of prototyping and what is sort of different in prototyping for XR, if anything, uh, than to more sort of screen-based media? What I found is that often what can happen when you present a prototype to people who don't necessarily have the same experience in the medium that you have. And that might lead to that you don't really get the feedback that you would have wanted. But so I, I don't know, does that strike a chord in your experiences? And how, how, how do you sort of onboard 
people who, especially with these technologies that are not everyday for many people, how do you kind of try to get the best and relevant feedback out of them? Yeah, that is really true, actually. Um, VR has changed so much in the last, you know, even five years, but especially 10 years. So mm -hmm. people who've maybe experienced something like VR, but, you know, eight years ago, their yeah. expectations of what's especially graphically possible are very yeah. different to what's yeah. actually possible. Um, so yeah, in that scenario, if you have a user like that and you show them a prototype, they may not realize that, that doesn't reflect the kind of visual design that they mm -hmm. can get with, with the end yeah. product. Yeah, in those kind of scenarios, you may have to develop what might be more useful is developing a small section of the application to its kind of final, I wouldn't mm -hmm. say final visual yeah. polish because you don't know what it will look like, but an example of um, a more polished you know, bu button or interface. And then in terms of the interaction, you can have the rest of it as prototype. As long as they know what's possible, you say, this is design A and we're going to apply design A to this yeah. interface X that we've made. But for now, just concentrate on the, the layout and things like that. Yeah, it, it is true. People can have certain misconceptions in XR because I think it's just evolving at such a mm -hmm. rate. So I'm curious, how do you think about what makes like good design, <laughs> especially I suppose interaction design. We are we are focusing on that in in XR, which obviously XR is quite a broad thing. But I mean, and kind of like what 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 do you take inspiration from when you think about your solutions? That's a very good question. I guess it is. Um, some principles I would say are always good. Um, mm. Like immersion is good, and accessibility is always good. And then other yeah. principles are more specific to the application. So. Um, something I feel very strongly about is that you really have to think about what problem you're trying to solve or what goal you're trying to achieve and design mm -hmm. your application around that rather than doing something just because it's cool. Like, does that actually help your user achieve whatever your goal is? If you're creating, I don't know, a, a training application for someone, do you really want an extremely complex interface? Probably not. Mm -hmm. You probably want to keep it fairly simple. Whereas um, maybe if you're pitching the interface, maybe if that is an application that you're pitching, maybe you do want something more complex. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in a science fiction game and you're piloting a spaceship, maybe you do want a complex interface. Um, the majority of the time, though, I would say things that are intuitive and simple are really preferable to things that are overly complex. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because when your user is immersed, they're going to have a, a more generally a more positive experience. And immersion is different in virtual reality to augmented because, mm -hmm. of course, in virtual reality, you, you cannot see the real world at all. So having intuitive interfaces and things is, is really crucial if you want the user to stay in VR, because otherwise they can't see you know, their controllers, they can't see yeah. their hands, they can only see the virtual representation. So unless you keep them immersed, they may feel like they have to come out of the headset to get some aid or to look at the controls. So that's, that's mm -hmm. really not what you want. So in VR, we have um, place illusion versus a plausibility illusion. This mm -hmm. would be more for like a VR a game, for example. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you're, the user is definitely in that place and the experience they're having is definitely plausible. Uh, are both really good things to keep the user uh, immersed in a virtual world. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the visuals you have to think about, which a lot of people do, but also sound. Um, so particularly in a game, yeah. things like realistic audio. So if you have an object that makes a sound, you know, as you walk around that object, obviously the, the sound should be tied to that object, which gives the user six degrees of freedom. They can move three dimensions and they can turn their head three dimensions. Mm -hmm. But also what if they move that object and they move it next to another object, which is made of metal or, you know, made of fabric is, should there be a different noise as a result? Like audio design is so extremely complex when it comes mm -hmm. to stuff like that. And then lighting, you know, are you going to use light probes in your world to 
reflect some of the objects around when a user is moving objects around. And, and this is particularly true in augmented reality. Can your object, if it's reflective, reflect the real world around the user, which is very technically complex. Mm -hmm. And also in AR, shadows and occlusion are really crucial for immersion. So you can create a virtual, it's quite simple to create, um, say a phone application, which puts something in the, in the real world, particularly if it just overlays it, it doesn't take into account the geometry of the real world. That's very, very easy to do. And then slightly more complex would be placing something, say on a real table in the real world, then you need mm. plane detection. But then to create a, a shadow underneath that object, and in particular, you'd want that object to be occluded if the user puts their hand in front of it, but you'd want the user's hand to be occluded if they move their hand behind that object. That's where it really starts getting a bit more challenging and a bit more technical. Um, but also the immersion there is much, much higher than just something that's overlaid in kind of not as realistic way. I think something else that's very useful is um, multimodal sensory input. So having, as I mentioned, your visuals, having sound, but also considering haptics if it's possible. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of different haptic devices. Obviously the ones I use the most are um, Ultraleap uh, haptic arrays, which use mm -hmm. ultrasound to create haptic experience. And uh, engaging the user in a haptic experience means you're bringing a third sense into virtual reality, which yeah. really increases the immersion a lot um, and really makes you feel as if you're interacting with, you know, with objects. Uh, and there's a bunch of different controllers as well that allow you to do that and wearable technologies as well that are including that sort of thing. So yeah, good design really depends on what you're designing. Good design for a game is going to be, it's going to look quite different to good design mm. for like a, a shopping app or something like that. Um, but something that is accessible to a wide range of people, something that's simple, intuitive, and easy to use, and something that's immersive, I would say, are the universal principles. Uh, maybe as a, as, a, as a final thing, um, I mean, you touched upon you know, when you when you recounted your own story to to delicate diversity and 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 things like that. So, I mean, how how do you see that specifically in the in the XR industry, and how do you have any words of encouragement to? you know, how could we uh, make this space more more diverse and inclusive? For sure, yeah. I, um, some of the, this is a little bit like the last question in the sense of that there are universal principles and then there are things that are more specific to each demographic. So mm -hmm. um, I have a talk about diversity in tech, not just in XR, but tech, tech more broadly yeah. is still a male-dominated space. Computer science is a male-dominated subject generally, um, which wasn't the case, you know, pre-1940, actually. Mm -hmm. um, programming, is even in the kind of Apollo era, was seen as um, women's work because it was seen as kind of clerical and, and secretarial. Um, and then once it became a very kind of powerful space, it, a lot of the women kind of left and the, the stereotype of male programmers kind of became more dominant. Um, mm -hmm. So in terms of making tech more accessible, there are things that are um, good for everyone. And then there are things that help specific demographics. So I spoke to black women and people of color. I spoke with a trans friend of mine uh, and I spoke with a woman uh, with a neurological condition and a disability. Mm -hmm. And so, women of every demographic are going to have different challenges. So commuting yeah. might be particularly challenging for, for actually for a number of women uh, for different reasons. So particularly women with access issues and disabilities and for a trans woman having healthcare that um, covers transitioning and surgery is, is a big deal. So th there's very specific things, but in terms of um, being more generally accessible and having broader access, um, something that's really key in XR particularly is access to devices. Mm. Uh, this was really a big problem for me. I had to save up in my last role, not at Ultraleap, but prior to that, I was working in a science center and I wanted to start doing virtual reality work, um, but there was no funding for it. Mm. So I bought a headset out of my own quite like insecure and not very financially lucrative like role and saved up, bought this headset. And I think if I hadn't done that, I, I really wouldn't have ended up in this space because there was no way I was getting access yeah. to any device. And the only devices I've, I've um, actually coded for are the headset I have, an Android phone because I have one, and then devices I've borrowed. So I, I think one of the biggest things we can do is have 
devices that are accessible to a number of people, either by having kind of the device library or having mm -hmm. loans or, or working with um, different institutions and organizations to, to lend that out. And then the other thing is overcoming that stereotype. I think there is this, this stereotype that you need to be a genius to work in mixed reality, that it's going to be very complex mathematics. And like, that's really not the case at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of Googling and, you know, we're all figuring out as we go. Um, something I find particularly encouraging about this space is that no matter how much of an expert someone is, the technology is growing so fast that it is possible to catch up. Even mm. if you start learning now and you think, well, I have no background in coding, no background in programming, that's completely fine. Because if you learn for a year or two, you're going to have more experience than a lot of people because these devices are coming out. It's such an emergent space. There's really a lot of room for people coming into it who are, who are very new. Um, so I find that particularly encouraging. And I think as we see more diverse representation in the space, we'll get more diverse candidates kind of seeing themselves in those roles and, and applying. So it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm so passionate about uh, representation in XR specifically. Cool. And, and also I remember seeing you mention that the fact that with XR, you can create worlds with their own rules. And, and that's sort of, that's something that inspires you uh, coming from the background you, that you come from. And so uh, how, do you, how do you comment that? Yeah, definitely. That's that's why I wanted to learn VR in particular. Uh, yeah. So it was VR that attracted me first, and then I kind of leaned more into AR like mm -hmm. nowadays. Um, yeah, that that idea really appealed to me because I had this kind of negative experience with certain parts of the world, and I think virtual reality in particular gives you. It's very empowering because you quite literally can build this immersive experience. Experience. you can build whatever it is you can imagine and put someone inside it and they can live inside your world temporarily when you decide what happens you decide the rules of engagement you decide mm -hmm. what the goal is um the potential negative we have there is that so much of the content right now is authored by a particular demographic yeah. person predominantly white predominantly male and so the worlds we're entering are authored from you know not necessarily as diverse a range of, of people as, as they could be yeah. when you search for vr stock images i think this is getting better now um but certainly a few years ago when you search vr stock images it's predominantly you know men wearing headsets and the, the type of content they're engaging with is like shooting games mm -hmm. and you know look at a dinosaur and i'm like it's things that you know i find them very interesting personally but they are stereotypically male mm -hmm. um whereas you know vr you there's no limit really to what you can create it could be a, a visual experience an auditory experience it could be putting someone in your shoes or, or you putting yourself in someone else's shoes um yeah so i think virtual reality is this very very powerful technology and, and augmented reality too but vr maybe slightly more so for this to allow you to build a world of your imagining and put someone else inside and i think if we see a diverse group of people doing that we're going to see these really diverse creations coming out of it which is just amazing great uh, i think that's a that's a great place to end so thanks antonio so much for your time Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode and the content we create, please do recommend to your peers, leave us a review or share on social media and also follow our online presence. So on Twitter, the podcast can be found at DiscoVRDesign. My Twitter handle is Akito, so that's at A-Q-U-I-T-O. And as I tend to say also in the beginning, please subscribe to my newsletter on design-related things having to do with XR. So that's designsuperpowers.substack.com. So until next time.
keep on discovering virtual reality design. Bye bye.